welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Libraries Turn the Page podcast. This is Jessica, and um, I like to read weird books, <laughs> which is something that um, if you've listened to my podcast or any of my book recommendations, uh, usually my favorite books are, um, as, as I was just saying to uh, the author we're about to talk to, completely bonkers, and they are my favorites. Um, so I, I'm really excited because last year uh, she wrote one of my favorite books, not just of the year, but just in general, a book that I'm constantly trying to put in the hands of everybody called The Last Housewife. And then um, this year, uh, Ashley Winstead, why don't you tell us about this book, Midnight is the Darkest Hour? Hi, Jessica. Okay, I'm so happy to be back. And um, I feel like I need to say I'm Ashley Winstead. I like to write weird books. <laughs> um, and with that introduction, yeah, let me tell you about Midnight. So um, Midnight is the Darkest Hour is a Southern Gothic murder mystery. Um, so it's new territory for me in, in some senses. And it takes place in the very small, very rural town of Bottom Springs, Louisiana. Um, and this is a town that is firm Southern Baptist country. This is where the books are banned. Um, and... Bottom Springs is ruled over by preacher James Cornier. Um, and when our book opens with a skull being pulled out of the nearby swamp and there, no one in Bottom Springs knows who's, who the skull belongs to, how it got there. And it strikes fear, terror in the hearts of the community because there hasn't been violence or a homicide in decades or so they think. The only person in Bottom Springs who feels like she knows exactly who this skull belongs to and how it got there is the preacher's only daughter, Ruth Cornier, who believes that she knows these things about the skull because she's the one who put it there six years ago. And now as she's watching all of this unfold, um, she realizes that her deepest, darkest secret has um, come to light, come unburied. So the book follows Ruth, who is the like exemplar of a good girl, you know, who's been seen but not heard, which is what she understands her father or parents want from her in the community. Um, and she has to do these very ungood girl like things like throw the sheriff off her trail and maybe even point um, the the arm of the law at some really bad people who actually deserve punishment so that's that's my little elevator pitch you know there's so much that i loved about this book um ruth was a really interesting narrator um there were a lot of things about her that i really really loved and you know the story between her and ever um ever were just it was very well done uh, because, I mean, who doesn't love, you know, a um, childhood romance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, forbidden love story between obviously, you know, the a, a good girl and 
I don't know if I'd really call ever ever a bad boy, but um, I think what was very interesting just about the story in general was how you sort of wove the idea of, you know, th this this theme comes up a lot that like reading is sort of what sets people free if they're in um, a place that is, you know, constrictive to the way that they think and, to, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, and Ruth is definitely being brought up in that type of community, um, you know, and uh, you say it's, you know, the Southern Baptist, it's like a mini cult of a cult of a cult. I mean, totally. this is like, it's like a niche, like a subsection. And um, she, you know, finds her freedom in the library reading teen romance books uh notably one with a vampire um which yep. is kind of important um and you know i'm always reading these stories and it's true because i hear from a lot of people and a lot of authors who were in this position like i got to go to the library and it set me free i grew up in this really restrictive situation and it set me free but you kind of play with that trope in this because it does save Ruth, but it also sort of shapes her in really interesting ways. And it shapes her, um, it shapes her relationship with ever. And it also just shapes her, you know, her moral compass. Uh, did you sort of like, where did all of this start for you? Because it, it feels like there was definitely an aha moment somewhere. Um, and without giving too much away, I'm curious what your aha moment was. Yeah. Can I just say that that's like such a beautiful and perfect encapsulation of the story? So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I would say so. I find myself really being drawn to writing books about stories and the power of stories, the power of the things that we tell ourselves, which uh, really comes out a lot in The Last Housewife and even in my dreams, I hold a knife, but just the power of the myths and narratives that shape us. And so very much um, at the core of Midnight is the Darkest Hour is like this battle between various narratives Um that that are battling for control over Ruth Cornier, battling for control over the town of Bottom Springs. And I, I pitched this book and the seed of midnight came to me when I, I always in my thrillers, I, I feel like I'm doing emotional excavation work where I'm going back into like past versions of myself and digging that girl out and um, kind of like healing old wounds and doing kind of catharsis and hopefully like doing that for my readers too. But Ruth, I reached all the way back. She's my youngest protagonist ever. We see her through ages 17 to 23. And Ruth, I reached back to my teenage self who was struggling to with my identity, struggling to break out of what I felt were very constrictive worlds. And in some ways they were, you know, struggling with conservative religion, I was struggling with uh, not feeling like I belonged in my community um, and just wanting more. Um, but I also think that every, it's a universal teenage experience and young adult experience to feel like there's got to be more in the world. There's got to be more for me. I don't know who I am. Um and seeking identity and answers in media and especially, you know, books and 
that was what it was for me. So when I pitched this book to my agent, I said, uh, Melissa, I want to write a book about that really heady, disorienting time in what I suspect is everyone's life when they're a teenager, but especially young women, where you don't know, you cease to know up from down, wrong from right. A lot of times you are, um, you've fallen in love with someone who's objectively not a good person, or maybe, you know, a bad boy or has a lot of things uh, go, you know, someone cringeworthy, maybe I certainly, or maybe that's just me, but I'm putting, you know, I'm out on that, that limb. Um, and, you know, you will burn the world down in defense of that person or in defense of like, whatever it is you fixated on. And I want to write a book, a thriller that captures that and has readers, even as they know that my two characters, and, and you know, Ruth and Everett, are making a lot of questionable and objectively bad decisions. They are just rooting for them despite that. So I really wanted to have fun playing with um, kind of torturing my readers a little bit and playing with the tension between law and objective right and wrong and subjective morality and what can be actually good that isn't lawful or um holy, which I think I just like copied a line from my book in quoting that. Um, whoops. But yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it came to me. It's just like a lot of interest in um, exploring moral philosophy, but forbidden love and teenage angst. I love it. And, um, you know, I, I really, there were definitely parts of this book and it, it, that, that made me laugh, but it was like, also there were, like, it took me a little while, you know, I was really into the story and I was really into just sort of the mystery of number one, um, the bodies and uh -huh. um, this world that they lived in and just sort of how um, Ruth and Ever were going to sort of like how they worked things out in the past and also how this was going to work now that so much of the good, good, good stuff just sort of like, I missed it. And there was one point in the book where I was like, oh my God, how did I miss this very obvious thing that is, again, for, I don't want to give it away, but sort of, um, you know, talks to the points that you were just discussing. Um, it is true, I think, that pretty much, every teenager goes through a point where they just have that feeling. And, you know, there's been some really funny media where like the parents are totally open and out to everything. And they're just like, yeah, it's fine. Cool. You want, you want to, yeah, cool. Okay. Oh, you, you, you know, you're gay. Cool. Awesome. Let's have a coming out party. And the teenagers are like, no, 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 no. Like, I know you're supportive. Thank you. But also, <laughs> you know, there, it, it just, no matter what, you know, I think there's different levels to that. Obviously, Ruth is the extreme level of, yeah. um, you know, a constricted life. She wants she wants to go away to college. That's like and that's like a big thing for teenagers. You know, she doesn't have like that choice has been made for her. And that choice is that she doesn't like she's not going to do it because yeah. she's not allowed. Um, and, you know, ever has this freedom, but he's also sort of uh, uh, maligned in the community. Mm -hmm. Um 
neglected. but neglected mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. and that's that's sort of a whole other thing you know like Ruth really really cares for him but she also I think without realizing it is sort of romanticizing what what has happened like what his life is yes um absolutely yeah which was which was another thing that ties into the big thing that I don't want to give away because um it it was really fun to sort of get that uh be like oh right uh but you know I think that um having it set between this age of 17 and then sort of Ruth on the precipice of possibly getting married to someone she's not sure of. And then Mm -hmm. this guy comes back and then secrets from her childhood come back as well was just a really clever way of showing two different coming of age points in extreme Mm -hmm. for two uh, people. Um, I fell in love with both of them. Did you immediately, did you find one of them more prickly to write than the other? Oh, no. I loved both Ruth and Everett so much. And I I have to say, I think their story is one of my favorite that I've ever written. I kind of just put everything I would want to see in a relationship. Like, I romanticized the heck out of them. Um, And I actually had this list going in a Word document of, um, like, the most epic scenes that I could imagine between, um, you know, like a young man and a young woman like this. um, And I'm I'm also struggling to dance around, not spoiling anything, but um, just these, like, the, the beauty of writing this story is that the setting I really wanted to make as fairy tale esque as I possibly could while staying within the real world. And so this spooky swamp setting of of in the deep south in Louisiana, I think kind of naturally gave me so many things to work with. And the fact that the town is not only very religious, but also on the flip side, very superstitious and truly suspects that there are, you know, demonic figures hiding in the swamp, like the low man and that all sorts of, yeah, things could be happening. Like that gave me so much to work with in being able to really um, make Ruth and Ever's relationship almost fairy tale esque in its scope and its intensity. Um, and so I think something that was really fun for me to play with is this question of like, what would it actually look like if all of the like relationships and fi- figures in fiction that we romanticize, like, for example, like Edward Cullen and Bella's Bella Swan's relationship in Twilight, what, what would it look like if this actually unfolded in real life? Um, and so I got to kind of like literalize um, a lot of, of kind of like supernatural or fairy tale esque tropes and, and, and narratives. So that said, do you like what were some of the um, cringe books that were around when you were at this age? Yeah, I was a little old for Twilight. Like I will say um, it came out when I was an older teenager, probably around 18. 
Um, and so I, even though I read the books and gobbled them up like everyone else, I, I wasn't going to the release parties or doing, you know, like um, I wasn't wearing my Team Edward t-shirts to bed um, as I knew, as I know so many people were. Um, I was thinking really seriously about the Twilight phenomenon. And then, you know, obviously that's that all that thinking resulted in Twilight playing a really large role in this book, Midnight. But for me, I was obsessed with Sweet Valley High. I loved Christopher Pike novels. Ah, just like, and those that like represents the two different sides of my brain, you know, like Fear Street and vampire novels from Christopher Pike. And then, you know, you got your kind of like aspirational romance slash family dramas with uh, Sweet Valley. And of course, The Babysitter's Club. Basically anything that was shelved in the YA section of a library I probably read because I basically lived in my library as a young person um we grew up I grew up as a navy brat we moved every two years so for a different reason I felt very much like Ruth in that I was always on the outside looking in at communities and found my refuge in books too she comes at it from a different angle but it's a very shared um, experience. So did you spend time then in the Deep South in communities sort of uh, close to what um, Ruth did? Yeah, so it's really funny. Uh, I was invited this past year to speak at a Southern Voices Festival. And it took me a second. And they're like, hello, Southern writer we invite you and I was like am I a southern writer because for so long we hopped growing up um, around to different places and then I realized I've lived in you know Florida with my parents for a very very long time in swampy southern Florida I went to school in Tennessee I also went to school in Texas I live here in Texas which you know arguably the south but southwest families in Louisiana um, you know, it's just like, yeah, I've been in the South for decades now. And um, even though my perspective is a little more, I would say, like global, um, and I don't feel like this sense of home in the South, so many of my stories are set there. And it really was my family living in Louisiana and me visiting them. And New Orleans is only a five-hour drive from Houston. So you drive through southern Louisiana to visit all my family there. And just, I have been dying to write a book set in southern Louisiana for a really long time. Because every time I visit the swamp, whether it's in Louisiana or Florida, um, I'm just struck by how magnificent and chilling and eerie a natural setting swamps are um, with danger lurking everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another thing I kind of wanted to bring up about it was you were talking about that balance between, um, you know, being like, and when you say religious, there's different types of religion, obviously, but, mm -hmm. you know, like this um, very strict Southern Baptist Christian religion, and then also holding these superstitions that probably almost pre-existed, you know, sort of permeated through that yeah. area. Did you, do you find a lot of that? I mean, is, is that, does that exist a lot? Absolutely. Like this, this is a niche 
historical and academic interest of mine, and it has been for a very long time, is thinking about the history of belief um, and the history of religions and thinking about like really the material histories of religion. So I've taken so many classes in my academic um, uh, journey in history about the history of thought and religion and how like all the religions that predated and influenced Christianity and the way that Christianity itself was shaped by people in, you know, powerful people in charge and how so much of what we understand as like the word of God in within the Christian tradition was actually, if you trace it back to the Council of Nicaea or so on and so forth, you know, early, early Roman Empire um, or like even Emperor Constantinople in particular, you are seeing like decisions made by powerful people to present, you know, the word of God in particular ways that that um, empowered them. So I just find that history and you can do the same thing with every set of religious beliefs. Um, and so I've always been really fascinated in the history of what seems supernatural and otherworldly or, you know, insert whatever world word you want, like metanatural. Um, and, and I had a really wonderful time crafting like an alternate history kind of fake historical text within midnight because ruth as you know someone who works in the library um and with her librarian companion and fellow employee nisa you know they're they're like we're gonna solve this mystery of these bodies that are popping up and we're gonna do it through books which is just was very fun for me to write so they're doing all of this research um, and it was so fun for me to kind of like reproduce so many of the texts that I have spent my life studying as an academic. Um, and just one more thing I want to say about the religion of it all, because you inspired me with what you said, um, Jessica, about pointing out that this, the kind of religion that we get in Midnight's the Darkest Hour is like a really niche, fundamentalist, strict version of religion. And one thing I really wanted to make sure I didn't do in Midnight was demonize like all religion or all versions of Christianity. So there are really good Christian souls in Midnight like Nisa, like people who are very committed to their religion, also like very great people. And also Ruth herself is very, very spiritual. And that is her saving grace is that she finds spirituality and communion with God and a higher power just outside the church that her father kind of rules over. Yeah, I thought so, too. And, uh, you know, that's like, you know, having her be sort of at that point where she is the daughter of basically, for lack of a better phrase, a cult leader, yeah. but also having, you know, her, her own faith, it was really, it was really well done. Um, and also just to kind of go back to what you were saying about, you know, like, researching things in the library. I mean, personally, I grew up with Buffy. And I think, you know, I, I think that, um, all research on supernatural stuff should always be done in a library that's maybe maybe that's just me but no yes please like there and you should have your guardian who is a librarian um and you you and yes. your like yeah 
you and your like what Scooby gang or whatever should just yes. meet in the library every week to yeah. do your research. <laughs> well, what is it? Uh, you know, the weekly apocalypse. That was always a fun thing. Oh my God. That was so formational for me. <laughs> yeah, me too. As a storyteller. Uh, me too, as just a consumer of media. And I think, you know, there was something in just that whole, um, there was something in that whole sort of world that you could go to school and, you know, at the same time, though, like you and your, you and your friends, they maybe, maybe they're not, you know, I don't know, the head cheerleader, although she got involved too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're, you're fighting the apocalypse every week because <laughs> in the library, it's just, yeah, I think that that shaped a lot of us. Oh yeah. Like this underdog mentality of like the, you know, the Xanders and, um, oh, I'm going to forget people's names, but, um, Willow, you know, just like the underdogs, yeah. the, the not cool kids, but like you said, Cordelia gets involved at some point. But yeah, secretly saving the world on a weekly basis and doing it from the library, just too good. That is so genius. Agreed. Well, I I really loved this book. It had um, a lot of really fun elements in it. I think, um, you know, I like your your bonkers books are all very different. And that's one thing that I really appreciate is that, you know, they... um, they're not like formulaic in any way, you know, uh, what is it in my dreams? I hold a knife and Uh um, the last housewife and midnight. They're all very, very different. Um, and they hit on a lot of different points. Uh, but they're all super, super fun reads and they go to dark places and just make you think a lot. So I just want to thank you so much for writing them. Thank you. God, I that like completely makes my day. And um, I appreciate that so much. I love <laughs> I hope that I can always continue to write like bonkers books, a and books that are very vastly different, because it's such a fun challenge. Are you doing um, any work on anything at the moment, either bonkers or romancy? Oh, yes. So I'm actually dipping my toe into a brand new genre. So in 2025, and I've just finished the first draft of this book, um, I've got a romantic drama slash family drama. Technically, we're categorizing it it as upmarket slash book club fiction, you know, because that rolls off the tongue, super elegant. Um, But yeah, that so I've written this book, but I really am pitching it as it's a book about grief and making art um in the midst of grief and um you know all of these kind of ghostly connections between artists and readers and listeners and it's set in the world of music um but also has a central love story so it's told uh in dual perspectives from the lead singer of a failing band that goes viral just when everything's about to fall apart for them and the manager who's sent in to get them on the straight and narrow and make them, you know, produce some profits. So lots of tension there. And I had so much fun writing that. And then my, I'm also writing my next thriller, which is going to be completely different um, than midnight. And um, is the in the way that the last housewife was pretty loosely inspired by Nexium and the Sarah Lawrence sex cult. 
Um, this next thriller is loosely inspired by the University of Idaho massacres that happened last year, uh, the quadruple massacres and the subsequent true crime community frenzy. Um, because I'm just absolutely fascinated by what I see from my perspective as the true crime community taking a, a bold new step into, you know, actually inserting themselves in the story by all running to Moscow in Idaho um, to oh, do yeah. the research. So, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that a wild story? It really was. And yeah, no, I'm I'm interested in all of that, too. And I do think, um, you know, it's very interesting like that we've kind of gotten past true crime books, specifically as true crime books, and really more books about the phenomena that are people who not just enjoy reading about and researching true crime, but like, they want to become a part of it. <laughs> yes, that is what's so fascinating to me. Like, the woman on TikTok, the the psychic who's predicting who uh, the killer was of of you know those four Idaho University of Idaho students, and then people descending on this person in real life based on the psychics, you know, and, and just like that's just one tiny story out of all of the bonkers to keep using that word things that happened. So I'm really oh I like really really deep in writing that and enjoying myself I cannot wait to read it is that one going to be out next year um actually I have no books out next year which ah! is I know both books were pushed to 2025 just for scheduling reasons so um I'm just going to write a ton and promote the heck out of other writers next year so well, it'll be interesting I'm looking forward to seeing who you promote and I'm looking forward to speaking with you again. Everybody check out uh, Midnight is the Darkest Hour. Check out all of Ashley's books, be they the romance, be they the bonkers. That really should be like the subtitle of this particular episode, right? Bonkers. Yes, 100%. <laughs> and uh, thanks again. Once again, this was Jessica with Say Austin Libraries Turn the Page podcast. Thanks to Ashley Winstead. And we are going to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.